If you're going to run a great business, you've got to have great people, and finding them is a huge part of that puzzle. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter.com has a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. It identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there. You can find them, but ZipRecruiter is how. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. One more time, try it for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. ZipRecruiter, it's the smartest way to hire. Once you check out their interface and you see those candidates come right into your inbox, you're going to realize it's a great choice. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. are entering the Freedom Hut. Seattle passes a law that says that some mega corporations with very progressive politics might have to contribute just a little bit to help with the homelessness problem. Guess what? Those lefty corporations are freaking out. We'll talk about that and also the latest with the upcoming North Korea U.S. summit, Trump and Kim Jong-un, there are some threats passing back and forth. The media continues to lie about what had transpired in the last 48 hours between Israelis and Palestinians at the border of Gaza. And also, the social justice warriors have taken over the sciences, including medicine. That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One Make, Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you with me, as always, live from the swamp. We got to get some cool swamp sound effects, you know, gators in the bayou, that kind of thing, you know, although this isn't a charming swamp like what you have in Louisiana. This is uh, this is a swamp of lobbyists and influence seekers. You know, if I had to give you a, a tagline on our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., it's where tremendous ambition meets relentless mediocrity. That's really what I think of when I think of D.C. That, that should, I don't think they're going to put that up on the, on the Board of Tourism anytime soon for the District of Columbia, but that's the, you want to know what's really going on here? There you have it. Uh, so I, I've got a lot of stuff that I'm excited. I'm excited to talk to you about today. I had a, so much time to uh, read it. I was up late last night reading in, doing research, and then today uh, getting situated here in, in the district, in, in the swamp. Um, but the story I want to leave with is not one that I think you're seeing grabbing all the headlines, right? I, I know that there's a lot of attention on North Korea. We'll, we'll get to that and the possibility of a cancellation of the summit. This is where we're seeing the Kim Jong-un that we expected, right? He's going to be cagey. He's not someone we can trust. Administration knows all this. Um, I want to start, though, with a continuation on a theme that we often have here in the hut. The Freedom Hut, as it were. And that is that progressives 
espouse certain beliefs. They tell us that they really care about certain things. And yet, when it affects them directly, all of a sudden it's, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. Oh, what's all this? What's all this uh, statism going on here? Uh, what's all the latest here with uh, big government in effect? Oh, settle down with those taxes. Great examples of this that we've been discussing recently. Schools. Liberals are all about just the social experimentation by social justice warriors in the public school system, in all schools if they can, until it affects like their kid's school. Then all of a sudden they're like, you know, I don't want to just bring in a bunch of low-performing students and make the better-performing students in this school, the school that you know my kid goes to, have to deal with that. But everybody else should have to deal with that. But I don't want to deal with that. You know, this is for thee, but not for me. A, a definitional slogan for modern Democrats and progressivism. Uh, also true about illegal immigration. I remember, I mean, we talked yesterday, Malibu, hey, dude, come hang out at the booze, go surfing, right? Although that's not what anyone in Malibu talks like. They're like, well, where's the butler? This Chardonnay's gone warm. That's what they sound like in Malibu. Uh, but they don't like it when homeless people are camping out down the street from them. They they want the city of Los Angeles, for example, to allow there to be tent cities that pop up and, and no ordinances enforced about not. Remember, it's not just the tents on the street. Then the cooking occurs on the street, urination, defecation, uh, sexual activity. This is all occurring in tents on the street. You want to walk past that? I remember New York City in the late 80s, early 90s. I tell you, you know, as a little kid, you know, holding my dad or my mom's hand real tight as we walked past an open air homeless shelter that wasn't actually a shelter. It just was people that had set up a city on the street, you know, yelling at each other. Fights would break out. Sexual assaults would happen. I'm like a six, seven, eight year old kid. I remember walking past that. It was not something that we wanted, but it was in our neighborhood. What are you going to do? You're going to cower in fear? You're going to hide? The city authorities didn't want to clean it up. And that was in liberal New York, by the way, but that's a whole other discussion. Now you get all these liberals that have managed to separate themselves from the rest of society, so they're all in favor of uh, illegal immigration, but they don't want illegal immigrants. They don't want asylum seekers, for example, from Nicaragua or El Salvador being uh, put in their school system. They don't want those undocumented minors Right, those dreamers, if you will, uh, in their school system. They want them in your school system. They want the taxpayer to pick up the bill for them, but not them as a taxpayer. They don't want to have to deal with the hit. And here we are. So w- with all of that lined up, here we are with a, uh, and a completely unsurprising circumstance of... Two of the biggest, most progressive corporations out there, Amazon, owned by Jeff Bezos, and Starbucks. Remember, don't forget, Bezos bought the Washington Post. He has tremendous influence on elite opinion as a result of that. Uh, But you have Amazon and also Starbucks, uh, two of the biggest companies in the country, and very progressive ones. That You know, Starbucks just decided that you no longer have to be a customer to use the bathrooms. You know what that's going to mean for the bathrooms at Starbucks? They're going to make the Port Authority bus terminal in Manhattan circa like 1985 when it was for, you know, 
people fleeing the law, runaways, and and homeless, uh, you know, homeless vagrants, right? There's a lot of that in the Port Authority bus terminal. It's going to be the bathroom like you'd find there. That's what's going to end up in a, in a lot of Starbucks. Not all of them, but because people don't care. There's no longer any relationship between the customer and the establishment. Now, like, I'm not going to fall on my sword over Starbucks bathrooms. I don't really care all that much, but it's not going to be good. Total aside, but this goes in the buck wisdom category. I... I think it was Anthony Bourdain, but I forget who it was, who wrote that you can tell everything you need to know about the bathroom in a restaurant. Everything, if you just pay attention. I used to think that that was silly. I've actually found as I've gotten older, it's true. Just that's just file that one away on the random buck, random buck nuggets of wisdom. Um, there are some other things. You know, there are some other things. If, uh, if the soup is good, you're usually in very good shape. If the bread is good, they bring out. You're usually in very good shape, but stories for another time. Back to Starbucks and Amazon. Seattle is a very, very progressive left-wing city, has a big problem with homelessness. So the Seattle City Council has introduced a way of alleviating that problem, and here's what it is. We got a, we got some affiliates out in Washington State. So if any of you folks, by the way, are listening, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Light, light it up here and tell me what it's like. Although you're, I think a lot of our affiliates are um, in interior Washington State, not uh, not out in Seattle area. Anyway, they got a lot of homeless people in Seattle. Now, homelessness is a very serious problem. And, you know, all of us listening have a lot. I look, I have a lot of sympathy for the homeless. I think a lot should be done to help the homeless. And... The more you learn about homelessness, what you find out is that, you know, the media often portrays it. Oh, and by the way, depending on whether you have a Democrat or Republican as president, the homelessness problem. I think Bernie Goldberg did a whole chapter on this in his book, Bias, many years ago. And it's true. The problem of homelessness gets highlighted when you have a Republican in office, even though the same number of homeless may have been there a week before when it was a Democrat in office. It's used as a, politi- uh, as a uh, political tool, political cudgel. And the truth about homelessness is that a, a vast majority of the homeless, now, and this is a little bit different where you have these kind of able-bodied, Occupy Wall Street vagrant types who carry around iPhones and iPads while they're like sleeping on the street and camping around. That's different. That's a, I'm talking about real long-term homelessness. It is overwhelmingly, tied to alcohol abuse, drug abuse, and uh, mental illness. Overwhelmingly. Now, that's not to say that that means that we shouldn't care or we shouldn't help, whatever, but, you know, we need to understand what the problem really is because also once you get that the homeless population are not people who just, like, lost their job at the mill and now couldn't make ends meet, that's very—it can happen. I mean, and people say, oh, Buck, I know this story about a person who lived in his car for a year. By the way, I think, uh, I'm being serious with you, there, there's a term, um, actually, I think used it in here somewhere, that when, you're, when you're living in something, but, you know, like a car, you're not homeless, you're, like, considered unhoused, I think is what they say. Um, but, yeah, it can happen, you lose your job, hit hard times. But long-term, which you can consider, the same way there's structural unemployment, there's kind of structural homelessness in the sense that there's, a certain, um, you know, long-term homeless population that we're dealing with. Uh, and if you're going to look at the problem realistically, it's not a downturn in the stock market that caused it. It's not 
you know, the, the unemployment rate affects it a little bit, but not all that much. It's really alcohol abuse, drug abuse, and mental illness. Okay. That also means that those people really need help that are on the streets. It's not a, you know, you get some people and some of my more radical libertarian friends are like, you know, leave them alone. Like, they can do whatever they want. Well, you know, urinating and defecating and sexual activity in public and, you know, setting fires because you're cooking stuff in an unsafe way. Like, these are municipal issues. These are problems for cities and towns that, to deal with because it's a problem for everybody else. Right? And also, there are these cases of, um, you know, a majority, a vast majority of the homeless, even more than that, right? Whatever. It, it, overwhelmingly, the homeless are nonviolent. But there are cases where some pretty terrible stuff happens because somebody's mentally ill and a threat to the public and they don't get dealt with. So th- that's just some back backstory for this issue of the tax. Because what is the government's first, well, government's first rule of how to deal with the problem is, is hold a committee, right, or, or have hearings, you know, have meetings. What's the second, the second thing that the government always does? That's right. Find a way to spend your money. You got to hold the meetings. You figure out where you're spending the money. Not that it's going to be spent well, but then they take your money. That's how government solves problems. They think. That's what government thinks it is doing. We're going to spend money on this. It'll solve the problem. You would think, though, that Amazon, which is uh, one of the largest, most powerful companies in the world. I mean, it's on track to be a trillion dollar company in terms of uh, its, its value. And you'd think that Starbucks as well, which is, I think, just after McDonald's in terms of number of franchises across the country, um, that they would be all in favor of a tax to deal specifically with homelessness. And the Seattle City Council must have figured the same thing, that they're going to raise tens of millions of dollars by having a head tax on those, on, on any company with revenues of over $20 million. By the way, that's not just Amazon and Facebook, but they're just two companies that have gotten very vocal about this. And it's going to be roughly 200... Originally, they said $500 a person. So for every employee... If you make over $20 million a year, you have to give $500 a person in taxes to this fund in Seattle to deal with homelessness. And then they cut it down... Yeah, two hundred fifty dollars a person. But what they're seeing is, sure enough, the biggest companies involved here are losing their minds over this. Starbucks and uh, and Amazon specifically, uh, all of a sudden, feel like they need to call out how the government is inefficient. Oh, they're saying the government's not going to spend the money well. Whoa, hold on a second, Starbucks and Amazon. You guys are pushing progressive agenda all the time. You know, now now all of a sudden you're worried about the government being inefficient, about taxes that are punitive, about the effect on employment. Oh, when the tax affects you, meaning you mega corporations of the left, now it's a problem. Now it's anti-business. Now it's anti-competitive. You know, couldn't that be said to be true of other taxes that are instituted with the best of intentions? You know, things that any social justice warrior would be pleased about. You see, the moment that it starts to affect them, 
the loudest voices in the Democrat Party on the left. They start to change their tune. It is so very, very predictable because, and you know where I'm going, hypocrisy is the defining characteristic on an individual level, and now as you on a corporate level, of the modern progressive. Hypocrisy is their defining characteristic. They want all these things to be done by the government in their name that they like, but not be done to them and not to affect them. See, I got a problem with that. We also got to talk about what's going on in Illinois with their system here. We got a lot more show, team. I mean, we just got started, but I'm just getting started. We haven't even gotten into North Korea, the fallout from uh, Gaza yesterday, a whole lot more stuff. Oh, and the I think the single silliest thing that Kirsten Gillibrand has ever said, which is really saying something. That and more coming up. Bernie Sanders is getting in on it. Play 13. The move toward oligarchy in our country not only impacts our political system, it impacts our economy and the standard of living of working people. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, saw his wealth increase by $275 million every single day. Meanwhile, thousands of Amazon employees are forced to rely on food stamps, Medicaid, and public housing because their wages are just too low. Moving toward oligarchy, baby. Uh, Bernie's wrong in the economics, but he's right about this. Jeff Bezos has a lot of power. But I wonder where he is on where Bernie is on what he thinks about uh, the pushback on this proposal. Right? You know, Bezos, I'm sure, and and the the folks who run Amazon, the folks who run uh, Starbucks, and I would note a lot of other companies that make over $20 million in Seattle. These are just the two Super big, you know, those are the two companies most associated with Seattle, along with, uh, I think Microsoft moved out of Seattle, right? It's somewhere else now. I don't know. I forget where Microsoft is headquartered out of. But they're making a lot of noise about this. And you would think that if they agree with Bernie on all these issues, that uh, here's an opportunity to do more about the problem of homelessness. I just thought it was so interesting to see the that Amazon's vice president wrote or, or said, quote, the city does not have a revenue problem. This is Seattle. It has a spending efficiency problem. We are highly uncertain whether the city council's anti-business positions or its spending inefficiency will change for the better, end quote. Well, how is that any different than any of us who have to pay taxes on all kinds of stuff feeling like, uh, yeah, Microsoft is in Redmond, Washington, producer Mike just told me, so different place. Um, But how is that any different than all of us who feel like yeah, they're just going to take more of my stuff and spend it poorly on crap. You know, remember the Obama stimulus? A trillion dollars, folks, just a giveaway to left-wing Democrat interests. Didn't do anything for the economy. Just spend a lot of your money. That's the Democrat answer to everything. But when it hits home, when the progressive corporations that love to push social justice policies all over the place, when they got to pay a little more in taxes, though, specifically, they have to pay more, not everybody, they go, oh, what do you mean? Oh, I don't like this anymore. I got another tax problem to talk to you about. Stay with me.
Yankees holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. So not only do you have this idea of homelessness, or, or I should say addressing, to be fair to the the uh, liberal redistributionist uh, do-gooders out there in Seattle and elsewhere, they, they want to address the problem of homelessness with us. They know it's not going to fix it. Okay, fine. But just tax people. Tax the rich. It's the Bernie plan, baby. Oh, yeah. Bernie thinks you tax rich people enough, you're going to get... You're going to get more of what you need. The problem with doing things like that in, in cities, and, and, and Amazon, by the way, is big enough that it did throw its weight around. It threatened to uh, stop building a, a headquarters because of this tax specifically. But, you know, Amazon is a company that can do that. Not all companies can, but sometimes they'll be able to fight back. Sometimes they will find a means of uh, trying to push back and refuse to just get pillaged by the government for its own needs for its own reasons but it's not just in seattle it's happening all over the all of the country in different ways different times different places illinois illinois is a uh, is the the blue readout in the midwest right it's the it's the fortress of liberalism because of chicago in the midwest and Illinois has got a massive budget crisis that it's dealing with, right? It's it's got it's billions and billions of dollars in the hole, and it's been run by Democrats, as you know, for a very long time. It is a uh, it is a big problem. What do you think the biggest issue they have is uh, when it comes to the budget in the state of Illinois? Oh, that's right, pensions. Because as I've told you. There is an unholy alliance. It's not just Illinois. It's a number of states, but an unholy alliance between Democrat Party politics and public sector unions. And the way this works is the best way to get benefits, to give benefits to the public sector unions is to back end it, right? Juice up the back end of the deal by giving people cushier long-term benefits than just you know if you start paying third grade teachers 150 grand across the board people are going to start asking questions right but if you give them pensions where they pay very little into their health care they have health care for life their family has health care for life all paid for by the taxpayer and some formula where it's you know 70 percent of the last of the average of the last three years or you know it depends where you are i don't know i knew what it was in new york i forget what it is or i i don't know what it is in other states but they have unfunded pension liabilities and the taxpayers just can't keep up. Now you may be saying to yourself, well, hold on a second, but you know, this is at the state level, mind you. And so you do have some redress here. And that's, what's going on with California, with Illinois, with New York. People are saying, I'm out. I'm done. Those who can, not everyone can people. If you're, you know, underwater on your mortgage, or if you're even just, you know, you don't have that much equity in your home and it's the market goes, the the market for sellers goes soft. And there's all kinds of reasons why leaving is not impossible from a certain state when it embraces a more confiscatory tax model. But it's hard. Right? It's not that easy. You know, I, I wish that there were uh, some conservative, friendly, low tax parts of the country that were also major media capitals, but I've yet to find one. 
I've yet to find one. Unfortunately, where, where there is media, there are liberals. And that's just the, the reality that I have to deal with right now. But Illinois is, has really decided to, uh, to up the stakes here a little bit with how they're going to approach their pension, uh, their unfunded pension liabilities. And this courtesy of, of Zero Hedge, a site that does a lot of interesting, particularly bearish and, uh, dare I say, catastrophe-leaning analysis, but uh, you know, they, they also do some interesting stuff. It's a site that does a, fair, a, a good amount of traffic and, and has some insightful posts. But they talk about this, this uh, last month, a pension event with the Civic Federation and the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. And what they decided is, okay, so this is the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. They're like, Here, here's the way we fix the pension crisis in Illinois, right? Remember, we just talked about Seattle. How do we fix the homeless crisis? Tax corporations, which could cause corpora- uh, corporations to leave the state. But the way they want to fix the, the, the looming catastrophe, the ticking time bomb of unfunded, pen- uh, unfunded pension liability in Illinois is, oh, that's right, you guessed it, taxes on the individual. What is the way that they are choosing to up uh, to raise taxes on individuals to really go after you, and that is property taxes. Now, I have a problem with this, folks, and I, I always have. Before I get into what Illinois is doing, just, just philosophically speaking, I think it is wrong, it is fundamentally wrong that the government will only really tax one asset you have as an asset in this way that it can change as it sees fit right you don't submit to the government every year a hey i'm worth you know i have a net worth of uh let's just say by the way i I wish right but let's just say it's a million dollars right you have a net worth of a million dollars i wish that was my net worth i'm worth a few thousand bring it um but if you have a net worth of a million dollars and you had to submit every year a check based on that net worth, that would be a wealth tax. We don't have that. We have an income tax. So wealthy people like Nancy Pelosi and John Kerry and other people that are wealthy based on money that other people made, uh, but they get to have long-term capital gains, which is taxed at a much lower rate. They have uh, you know tax shelters and, and just ways of living off of the interest of unearned income, so they don't really care. Right. They don't care what the income tax rate is. I promise you they would care a whole lot more if all of a sudden it was, you know what, every every uh, ask every dollar you're worth over 10 million. There's a two percent surcharge on that. You send a check to the government every year. All the limousine liberals, you know, would be I mean, they'd be like Les Mis, baby. There'd be pitchforks and yelling on the top of the barricade. And, you know, Monsieur Valjean, you know, all that stuff. Right. They'd be freaking out. Right, you don't have to, you know, you come and you saw the movie. You guys saw. Don't look at me. You saw the movie with uh, Wolverine and and Maximus in it, whatever their real names are. Um, but what they're doing is is a, is a version of the wealth tax, but it's on homes, which is where a vast majority of people have most of their money. And, and I I just disagree with this because the government should not be able to force you out of your home that you own because they are raising the taxes on that 
as an asset, right? So if your home is worth $200,000 a year, in some places you have to pay on property taxes. A lot of you I know right now are nodding your heads. You're like, yup, Buck, it stinks. I got to send a check, property taxes. You send a check for whatever, 1% of the assessed value. By the way, the assessed value, depending on where you are, but based on what the assessor thinks, assessed value can be way beyond what the market value of your home is. Depends on where you are. But they'll say, oh, yeah, this, this house is worth a half million dollars. You're like, what? I paid 250 for it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but you're going to pay taxes as though it's worth a half million. You're like, but I can't even get, I can't get a half million dollars. I can only get 250 for this house. Oh, you know, sorry. You're going to pay a half. And that's it. Fighting it in court is very, this is a problem in New York State, by the way. I, I know, know people that have had to go through this fight. Very difficult to deal with the uh, assessor's whims. But in, in Illinois, they are taking this to this next level where you're going to be paying about 1%, they estimate, of actual property value each year for the next 30 years. Straight up tax on the, on the overall asset that is your home. What this really means is you are renting the home you own from the government. You don't really own it. You rent it from the government. This means the state of Illinois is a landlord. You have to send them a check every year or else you lose your home. It will be repossessed. This is wrong. This is fundamentally wrong. And I, you know what? I'm only a few blocks away from the White House here. I know some people down here. I want to start, you know, we got to, I know people say buckets at the state level, but this needs to be a, a much louder, much more forceful conversation. Government should not be allowed to come along and think. Remember, the outrage, if you try to touch Nancy Pelosi's you know, bank account with $20 million in it, just take a percentage of it, she'd, she'd freak out. She only wants to pay a percentage. I know I like picking on Pelosi because she's a rich elitist, but she only wants to pay a percentage on the unearned income she gets from her assets, right? But that gets really hard because the private jet's really expensive. But you get what I'm saying. If you were taking a percentage of, of, of her wealth, she'd be very upset. Anyway, a lot of these liberals, they're very wealthy. You know, Tom Steyer, well, once you get in the billionaire category, I guess you probably don't care because you're so wealthy that, you know, whatever. But otherwise, wealthy people would start to have a big issue with this. But they're going to start charging people in Illinois th- property taxes, 3 4 5%, depends on where you are. That's crazy. That is crazy. And also government bureaucrats get their pensions. And here's the part of this that's really stinky. Zero Hedge Hedge points this out. You might say, well, Buck, they should leave. We got plenty of room down here in the Carolinas. Plenty of room in Texas or in Florida. Florida's pretty crowded these days. But, you know, plenty of places they can go. Nevada, right? No state income tax and more favorable taxation regime across the board. Problem is... Property taxes are also tied to the value of the home. So it becomes harder to, once they raise the property taxes, it becomes harder to sell the home. Which means you got to lower the price, which is just another form of confiscating wealth from people to give it to the government. And confiscating wealth from those who are working hard. This is, by the way, it's going to affect, uh, affect people at the, you know, at the everyman, you know, working class level, all the way up the chain in, in, Illinois and it's just it's just an outrage and you're seeing this in other states too the taxes are gonna go up and this I'm gonna put a pin in this now we're gonna move on to some other stuff I got we got to talk Gaza North Korea and there's a lot of that coming up but you know your pocketbook matters right your your money matters to me my money matters to me 
tax increases are coming at the state level in, I, I think you're going to see a lot of this. And it is only a matter of time, and it could be a lot sooner than it feels right now, before federal income taxes are going to get raised. I know right now we're still kind of feeling the high of Trump's tax cuts, and it's been a good thing, great for, the business, great for business, great for the economy. Do any of you listening for one second think that the Democrats will turn around after this and say, yeah, you know what, tax cuts were, that, 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 that worked. Let's try that again, or let's keep it going. No, my friends, they want to turn right around and make up for lost time and just tax and tax you into oblivion. Nancy Pelosi, Bernie Sanders, and others, they want to take more of your money, if not to fund pension liabilities in the state in states, which they're not going to do that, obviously. They're doing it to pay for the $20 trillion plus of debt we've run up. Oh, yeah, it's coming. Just remember the words of uh, Amazon right now. We're worried about uh, how the uh, money will be allocated and spent by the state in this instance. Yeah, I'm worried, my man, about how the money is allocated and spent in every instance by the federal government. Which is why I want to give them the bare minimum of my cash because Buck needs it. Buck needs a new pair of shoes, too. We'll be right back. We have yet to see any credible evidence or intelligence that led to the opening of this investigation. I believe they never should have opened a counterintelligence investigation into a political party. Counterintelligence investigations are, are very, you know, very rarely do they happen. And when they do happen, right. you have to be very careful because you're, you're using the tools of our intelligence services mm-hmm. and relationships with other countries in order to spy on a political campaign. Probably not a good idea. Yeah, that was Devin Nunes. You know, I think that one one separation, one difference between the way a lot of conservatives I know view all this stuff and the way the left views it is that if I were to find out on all this with the Mueller probe and everything, the Russia collusion stuff, if I were to find out that I had been in in any way really wrong about this, meaning that there there really was a credible and serious effort to work with, I mean, I can't say with a straight face, but, you know, I would be um, very upset at people working in the administration. I'd be very upset at the Trump administration, and, and I would want answers, and I would want justice. That all said, it's kind of like saying, well, okay, what, what would I do if, if space aliens landed tomorrow and like tried to take over the human race? It's not something that I worry much about. But on the other hand, if, in fact, it becomes irrefutably true, as I believe it is increasingly the case... If it becomes irrefutable, cannot be debated by any honest and serious person that the intelligence community, the FBI, the DOJ uh, were embroiled in a plot to undermine the Trump administration, weaponize the intelligence community, weaponize the spying and the FISA process, everything. And by the way, I know you're like, Buck, we're already there. But but I mean, you know, when we get the re- the smoking gun that not even... MSNBC can ignore, right? The smoking gun that cannot be explained away. Here's the part of this that I know is true, and I just want to psychologically prepare you and me for it. No matter what we find out about what Comey and Strzok and Page and McCabe and Yates and all these different characters, no matter what we found out they did, no matter 
how obviously police state and authoritarian and wrong and deep state and the left will be like, yeah, it was necessary, though, under the circumstances. You cannot shame them. There will be no shame. If, in fact, it becomes clear, as it already, I think, is almost there, to anyone looking at this, that, that the real the real underhanded effort was to stop Trump, not to help Trump, from within our own government, using sources in the Trump campaign run by the FBI, the DOJ, perhaps others. If we get to that, that day when it's just all there and clear and clear as day for us, they won't care. They will think that all this had been worthwhile. They'll be happy with what's gone on. And they, in their view, they win no matter what, folks. I need you to remember that. They're not playing this game to be ethical. They're not playing this game to defend our democracy, to uphold their institutions. That's just the facade. That's just what they tell each other. Many of them do so with a bit of a snide sneer. They have no interest in the facts or the truth about any of this, really. It's just meant to tie down, bog down, and harass Trump and his administration. And that's what's going on here. Nine Line Apparel is a veteran-owned and operated patriotic lifestyle brand. It's also a give-back company. So the folks that run Nine Line are proud to announce a partnership with NASCAR driver Jeffrey Earnhardt to give back to children of our nation's fallen. Now until tonight, go to NineLineApparel.com to get their Remember the Fallen Memorial Day shirt. And with each shirt purchase, you'll have the option of submitting the name of a fallen soldier these heroes' names will cover Jeffrey Earnhardt's car at the Coca-Cola 600 over Memorial Day weekend in Charlotte. Nylon, by the way, they're partnering with Angels of America's Fallen who support the children of those lost due to military service. So please help honor and uh, support our fallen heroes and their families. Go to NineLineApparel.com to get this exclusive Memorial Day t-shirt. And you've only got till tonight to do it. NineLineApparel.com. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. I want to follow up with uh, what happened with Hamas yesterday at the uh, Israel-Gaza border. Uh, first of all, the way that the, the media talks about this stuff, it's, it's astonishing to me that so many people in New York and D.C. have such a soft spot for vicious terrorists. Based on the way they talk about it, I don't know what else to say. They, they seem to really bend over backwards to do the minimum of mean speaking about Hamas, an organization that, if it could, would launch suicide bombing attacks against Israeli women and children and the elderly at weddings, in pizzerias, and discotheques every day. That's what Hamas would do if it could every single day. We know this because they've done it before. Not every day, but as often as was possible for them. And the Israelis outflank the bad guys. 
created a wall, created barriers, created security for themselves. Sorry, Hamas. Go live in the misery that you create for yourselves in Gaza. Uh, it really is an, an exemplar. It's a, a case study of the whole world. You want to be a rule of law, civilized, Western-style democracy, Israel, or do you want to be an authoritarian theocracy based on hatred and jihad? Gaza. One of them is a nice place to visit, a nice place to live. The other is not. It doesn't have to be that way. Gaza actually could be a nice place to live. The problem with Gaza is Hamas and the ideology of a lot of people that live there. Media doesn't seem to get the hint on this, though. Really don't. And, uh, I mean, here, here's just a montage producer Mike pulled together. Play clip two. These were peaceful protesters, and uh, a lot are saying that Israelis didn't necessarily have to use live fire on them. Tens of thousands of young people crossing fields between the urban part of Gaza and the Israeli border unarmed. The protesters, including six children who were reportedly killed today, seem to be losing their lives for nothing. Shooting unarmed protesters is not what it is about. There's no justification. Uh, for the shooting and killing of unarmed Palestinian protesters. The IDF snipers shooting kids, people in wheelchairs. So there's no responsibility beyond that on the Israeli authorities. Kill at will. All of those babies are dead. All of those people are dead. They're dead. All right. Let's unpack this, shall we? Let's work through this together for a moment here. What we know is that actually there were Hamas operatives. This was released today. At least uh, about a dozen Hamas operatives killed. People that work for Hamas internal security at that fence. Reporting from the Jerusalem Post is as follows. Uh, The IDF confronted disturbances at the fence. Intelligence was received that a Hamas squad was planning to place an explosive charge on the fence to allow for a mass infiltration into Israel. They were trying to do kind of a prison break from Gaza into Israel to create chaos, bloodshed, anarchy. That was that was what they were trying to do. And they opened fire in order to prevent that. Now, the Israeli uh, IDF uh, rules of engagement. By the way, this reminds me of the movie rules of engagement. It's actually pretty good. Uh, if any of you have seen it, uh, it's got Tommy Lee Jones and Samuel Jackson. And it's at an embassy in I think they're in Yemen. I forget if they specify that or not, but I think it's in Yemen. And there's a protest outside the embassy, but there are also bad people with guns killing Marines outside the embassy, U.S. Marines. And so Samuel Jackson tells his guys to open up. And they kill a whole lot of people because there are snipers in the crowd, people with weapons in the crowd. And then it turns into a whole political fiasco afterwards of, did this Marine you know, execute all these people who are just peaceful protesters? And you see the same stuff, unarmed. Oh, they're unarmed. Well, first of all, that wasn't the case in the movie. Which I actually think it's pretty good. It's worth going back and watching. Uh, Rules of Engagement's called. Um, and they weren't unarmed in this case either. See, a lot of people in the press don't understand. They have no tactical training whatsoever. They don't understand how firearms work. They don't understand how ballistics work. So, for example, when you were dealing with a crowd of people, if someone has a Molotov cocktail and they were running at a soldier... They keep saying, oh, the snipers were shooting them. The snipers were shooting them. Um, You can hit that person 
and the bullet can actually very easily go and hit someone behind them. It depends on what kind of weapons we're talking about here. And, you know, is this a Galil? What, what kind of rifle? Or The Israelis are trained to shoot at the legs so that they're using less than, le- or trying to use, le- look, you can still hit a femoral artery. You can, you can pretty easily die from getting shot in the leg too, but a lot less likely than if you're shot center master in the head. Then, then you know, the odds of mortality go up dramatically. But the Israelis are trying to use less than lethal force when they could. They were shooting at legs when they could. And then if they felt an imminent threat, yeah, they're going to take out Hamas operatives trying to get to the, the border, uh, trying to get through the border, throwing Molotov cocktails. You even you had uh, Matt Bradley over at MSNBC, again, with this unarmed talking point. But then he had to actually address that a little more. Play clip one. What I've seen here just yesterday and last Friday was horrible violence. Uh, you saw tens of thousands of young people crossing fields between the urban part of Gaza and the Israeli border, essentially trying to walk across this heavily militarized border um, unarmed. Now, as uh, you know, it's it's easy to say they were completely unarmed. They had some light weapons. A lot of them would be burning tires or rolling tires to try to melt the razor wire. Uh, they had slingshots. Uh, they had a new and crazy invention, incendiary kites, where they would try to loft kites and uh, with and set them on fire to try to light up some of the agricultural fields beyond uh, the border with Israel. Well, according to the IDF, a pistol, grenade launchers, charges, and preparations for opening the fence were all found where the, where the main firefight was between IDF and this so-called unarmed, uh, unarmed mob. But... A few hundred people with rocks and Molotov cocktails and makeshift weapons. Would you want to face them down? Would you feel like that was a threat to you? Would you want to let them pass you if you were in charge of security? If you were in charge of securing this nation's border, let's say, from an angry rabble threatening to go in as they were, chanting about how they wanted to kill the first American, in that case they are talking about Jews, but the first American they saw, would you just let them through and be like, well, you know, they didn't have they didn't have semi-automatic rifles, and I didn't I didn't think it was a fair fight, so we just let them through. They can burn down the first house they come to, and you know, kill all the inhabitants. But at least I didn't shoot them. I don't think so. I don't think you'd do that. I don't think I would do that. Right? How does the media not get this? And why do they play into the propaganda of Hamas here in a way that's just so blatant, so obvious, and not just the news media, also in pop culture. Hamas has become a, a resistance movement that Hollywood celebrities are like, oh, look at what's going on with... And they'll say, oh, it's not Hamas, it's just the Palestinian people. Who do they think is behind this? Who runs Gaza? Gaza's not a big place. Who is the, the law? Who is the state such as it is in Gaza? It's Hamas. Who wins elections there? Although, you know, it's not a free society. I know, but I'm just... people. Do, there are people who vote for Hamas, okay? Understand that. This is not just some tyranny enforced at the end of a gun. There are Hamas supporters. Lots of them. Uh, what's the real number? It's tough to say. But you, you have, for example, uh, Chelsea Handler, who is, I think, charitably described as an idiot. Um, but she's out there with, with her. You know, she's got millions of Twitter followers. She's writing this about what happened yesterday. Now the BB crazies are running the show 
unchecked and will effectively turn Gaza and the left bank into starvation camps or mental asylums, if not already, and bomb Iran into submission. There will be a religious term for this. I think the evangelicals call it the rapture. So, I mean, it's not even really worth dissecting her stupidity. I just wanted to share with you, this is what American celebrities say about this. They're so uh, hateful about Israel. By the way, she wrote much worse stuff than that, but I didn't want to read all of it on the air. Judd Apatow, somebody who's, you know, responsible for making some movies that are, some of them pretty funny. Some of them are pretty good. I don't like, you know, some of his stuff stinks, but... He wrote it on Twitter, Why would the U.S. not want to investigate all this killing? If our people were killed somewhere, wouldn't we want an investigation? What are we becoming? I mean, that's in response to the shootings at the fence. And we all know, I mean, this is because America supposedly shut down this attempt by the U.N. to characterize uh, the Palestinian protesters as peaceful. They are not peaceful. But this this word game that they play with unarmed, right? People are unarmed protesters. It's just meant to automatically set the conversation in a certain direction, which is, well, if they're unarmed, they must be innocent. They must be not a threat. This happens with Black Lives Matter and the anti-cop protest movements in this country all the time. Oh, well, so-and-so was unarmed. Really? Well... Was he trying to punch the officer in the face and take his service weapon? Because then he could really easily kill the officer. Was that happening? Well, yeah, but he was unarmed during the struggle. He didn't get the gun because the officer had to use force to defend himself. Okay, so you know we see this time and again. Mike Brown, Ferguson, unarmed. Guys like 6'6", 320 pounds, trying to pummel an officer, and all accounts were that that's what happened. Is that officer supposed to let him get tackled to the ground, completely outweighed outside, uh, you know, a, a big size differential with Mike Brown and see who wins that wrestling match with a gun in play? I think not. All right. I have a patrol officer now retired in my family. I wouldn't want him to wrestle with somebody of Mike Brown's size and see who ended up with the gun at the end of it. Sorry. It's not how this goes. But, you know, there's all these different threads that come together why the media loves to loves to just go along with the oh the palestinians are such victims and you know hamas is misunderstood and the the israelis are these big bad bullies Uh, part of it is just there uh well i i I do that look there is a lot of anti-semitism that's involved in this certainly in the case of uh european media i think a lot of the a lot of american journalists have problems with israel that go beyond its foreign policy as well but then beyond that, you have the, the idea of the Palestinians, and we're going to talk a lot about intersectional politics, identity politics, and how it affects medical school and science, by the way, in this country. That's going to be a, a conversation we'll get into later this hour, and then I'll go, you know, probably go into the next hour. Too. I think this is such an important topic. But even the Palestinians abroad and the way that, we've, the, way that the American left and media views them goes through this lens of intersectional politics. So because Palestinians are Muslim and, and brown in the parlance of the left, right? This is all they'll say they're Muslim, they're brown. Uh, they are victims and worthy of greater support and uh, excuse making, you know, whatever we have to do versus the Israelis. Now, 
anybody who knows anything would be like, well, the Israelis are Jews, it's the Jewish state, and goes without saying, Jews have faced more than their share of persecution throughout history and in recent history, too. Uh, but yet, because Jews are, or Jews in Israel are um, predominantly white, not, not all, but predominantly white, and you know, they're not victims of colonialism. In fact, in the, in the left-wing framing of the Israeli-Palestinian issue, Israel is a colonial outpost in the Middle East. Despite the fact that the Jews have been in Jerusalem and 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 in uh, Judea and Samaria for you know thousands of years, they still think of it as a colonial issue, and so there's a a kind of a, a white oppression of the non-white world inherent in the Israeli project. I mean, this I'm just telling you, I studied with left-wing radicals on campus on this very issue. I specifically took seminars in Arab-Israeli conflict from people that took this, so I know how they think. They write papers on how Israel is an apartheid state. They want it to be divested from the international financial system. They want Israel to be a pariah state. And that's taught here, in this country, in elite schools. So I'm trying to get to the why behind all of it. But they're really embarrassing themselves on this in particular. uh, Nikki Haley had some... uh, some particularly astute commentary on this. I want, to, I want to hear from her for a second. Play clip 10. They light Molotov cocktails attached to kites on fire and attempt to fly them into Israel to cause as much destruction as possible. When asked yesterday why he put a swastika on his burning kite, the terrorist responded, quote, the Jews go crazy when you mention Hitler. This is what is endangering the people of Gaza. Make no mistake, Hamas is pleased with the results from yesterday. No country in this chamber would act with more restraint than Israel has. Radical Islam is a death cult. Hamas is a radical Islamic terrorist organization. Death cults push for as many martyrs as possible to justify more violence from their side later on. So, yes, it is, in fact, true what Nikki Haley said there. Hamas is pleased, could not be more pleased with what happened at that border fence between Gaza and Israel. Um, like I said, we'll talk about intersectional politics later on in the show. That's coming up. And uh, I've got a whole lot more for you, team, so stay with me. Uh, we put the onus squarely on Hamas here. This is an organized, purposeful propaganda technique by Hamas to try and garner support and sympathy from media outlets and from the rest of the global community. But when they have a clear disdain uh, for life by using human shields repeatedly, as you just uh, saw Nikki Haley testifying to the fact that they were putting Molotov cocktails on kites and trying to fly them over the border, this is the type of action so that they will, in fact, get shot. So it looks as though it's somehow someone else's fault for their uh, action. Yep. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what's going on. Our buddy Kenny in Boston has some thoughts. What's up, Kenny? Hi, Buck. First off, I am beholden that Buck has not suspended my Team Buck membership, and I take solace my liege in your bountiful magnanimity. But anyway, um, I was wondering why Hamas uh, is named themselves after a bunch of pureed uh, garbanzos and sesame seeds. 
but I know it's Hamas. Anyway, I, I had a comment earlier about that taxation thing in Seattle. Yep. And, um, well, I know I don't want to mean to beat a dead equine or anything like that, but isn't this just another sly way that they can put a hidden tax on the middle class? Well, the 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 uh, the corporations they're talking about, especially like a Starbucks or a uh, Amazon, is in a perfect position to go. Okay, you want to put that tax on us if it affects our bottom line? We're just going to pass that on to consumers. So yeah, and the politicians know that. I mean, that's, yeah. it's not like they, they they they're trying to like hide it and say yes, we're going after those big evil corporations. But when in fact, really, they know the money. Yeah, the, the big evil corporations are in the are in the best position, Kenny, to just socialize the cost of the taxes by passing it on to all the rest of us, right? I buy stuff from Amazon all the time. So I don't, am I now going to be subsidizing uh, Amazon's taxes in Seattle? I mean, you know, it, they're a big enough company where I probably wouldn't feel it over here, but that's how it works. It does get passed on to the consumer. Thanks for calling in from Boston, my friend. Stay strong up in Boston. Good to talk to you. Um, Christian Gillibrand, what is the dumbest thing she's ever said? Now, I mean actually the dumbest. If you stay through this uh, quick break here, you'll find out. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. North Korea is threatening to cancel the Trump summit. Uh... This is uh, because of the, quote, provocative military ruckus of joint U.S.-South Korea drills, which North Korea is saying is our rehearsal for invasion. So you have the June 12th summit in Singapore, and now you get North Korea that is uh, making noises about our joint military exercises with the South. Um, look, this is not surprising. Uh, the, the, also, the new state of North Korea started to dismantle a nuclear test site they're they're posturing and they're trying to negotiate and they're this we need to get ready for this and strap in for this it's not going to be smooth sailing to some kind of uh obvious choir of angels singing moment at the summit with trump and kim jong-un it's going to be a lot of back and forth it is high stakes poker there's going to be bluffs there's going to be calls there's going to be things that happen that call this whole thing into doubt and the eventual result may not be what we want but we're in the game. We're trying, trying to find a better path forward, North Korea. I might have more uh, more thoughts on this tomorrow. I, I just I feel like there's updates to this, and then there's also just the media obsession with North Korea. Let's just talk about North Korea. Well, this is a negotiating tactic on their part. We'll see what they come up with. We'll see what the U.S. response is. There, there's not really much more to it than that. That summit has not been called off. I think right now it is unlikely the summit will be called off, but it's going to be a bumpy road. So uh, maybe we'll get more into North Korea tomorrow. I want to talk about Kirsten Gillibrand. Not to be confused with Kristen. Kirsten and Kristen are the toughest names to keep apart of anything in the English language that I'm aware of. But she was uh, at some kind of a forum. I, I don't know. I'll I, Just so I can give you the... yeah. I'm on a live nationally syndicated radio show in like over 125 stations or something, and, and my computer just froze. So that's that's cool. That's a thing that happens. But uh, 
I was going to look up where she said that doesn't really matter. Gillibrand was at some kind of a forum talking about some stuff, and she said this. Play 15. We don't value women in society, and that's just the fact. And it's not just, you know, I feel exposed because I'm tearing up because I'm not like a man. No, how about I'm tearing up because I'm so angry and frustrated, yeah. and my emotional intelligence is going to what make this company succeed. You know, if it wasn't Lehman Brothers but Lehman Sisters, we might not have had the financial collapse. I think that's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. If it wasn't Lehman Brothers, but Lehman Sisters, yeah, girl power. It's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I mean, it's not the dumbest, but it's certainly in in the pantheon of stupid quotes from U.S. politicians. I think that's close. I think that's up there. It wasn't Lehman Brothers, but Lehman Sisters. This is a recurring theme now. There is this movement in the Democrat Party of what I think you'd have to just call a, a, a brainless feminism. It, there's no thought that goes into it. There's no, uh, no philosophical foundation for it. It's just, you know, yeah, like we're so oppressed and like the wage gap and yeah, stuff, angry, yelling. I don't think that... The, oh, we don't value women in society. That was another quote. We don't value women in society. Really? We don't value women. Uh, th- that's a fascinating thing. To, so we don't value our, our mothers, our sisters, our wives, our, our, our life partners. We don't value the women we work with. The women, that, that's... Uh, there's like a level of stupidity that sometimes is reached where... Oh, she was speaking at the Center for American Progress Ideas Conference. Okay, there you go. But there's a there's a level at which you have to say to yourself, I'm I'm overwhelmed by the stupidity. I'm overwhelmed by, as I said, the brainless feminism. And and that's where and by the way, people talk about her as a presidential candidate, folks. Yeah, women have like no value in America. And if it were like Lehman sisters. Really? Who thinks women have no value in America? Women are more valued in America than anywhere else in the world. Okay, start with that. There's greater equality between the sexes here than anywhere. I don't know. People say, oh, but what about Sweden or something? Please. All right. Give it a rest. Uh, it's, it's just amazing to see this. And it was like, you know, Michelle Obama about how, you know, w- women are, you know, have to do, be better than men and everything else to get the same job. No, this is, this is not... Do, do not try to create a special victim class of half of the planet called women. Uh, you know, and I know if I start saying things like, actually, in America, we revere women. And, you know, I feel like guys like me, a, a lot of our, our uh, drive in life is to be a good father, a good, a good husband, a good you know, protector and provider, and, and to be worthy of the women in our lives. Don't value them. I feel like for a lot of us guys, uh, women are like a big part of the reason we get up every day and do the stuff we do, the good stuff we do. It's for women, the women in our lives, to be worthy of them. They're not valued. Kristen Gillibrand, he's just a nincompoop. We'll be right back. Where is the left really wrong? I know that's a question that a lot of you probably are either thinking to yourself or maybe even shouting out a bunch of answers right away. But 
there's a big battle being waged right now, ideological, intellectual struggle over identity politics. And not just are they a good idea, are they a moral idea, are they ethical? Are they the right thing from a philosophical perspective? Are they the right thing also then from a policy perspective? Right? Is treating people like part of a group, this is at the heart of identity politics, based on a racial and sexual orientation and uh, you know, some other categories uh, of, of different, of a hierarchical nature, right? Some people are this category, you know, you have uh, black people go into intersectionality in one place, uh, the LGBT community goes into intersectional politics in another place, and, you know, Latinos and Asians, and, and, and everyone is treated like they are a part of some group that's determined by their their birth and their um, their skin color or their ethnicity, right? All, all these different things. Is it just wrong on its face to make decisions about people based upon that and to treat people as though there are immutable characteristics that come along with that identity, right? People think of, well, isn't that racist, Buck? Well, certainly it is when you're talking about negative characteristics, but what about when you're imputing positive characteristics or what about when you say because you are part of this larger group you should have certain benefits right now we're getting to something of the affirmative action discussion uh, or the diversity discussion which is even broader than just affirmative action but there's some places where this doesn't really seem to hold sway professional sports for example isn't it interesting how we never really hear about the need to diversify professional sports teams they just are what they are because there's an understanding that whoever is the most elite in that sport and therefore whoever can compete at the highest level and draw the most viewership on tv and at at events is the person that should be you know elevated we understand that with sports and, and that's why you don't have calls for diversity at sporting events, whatever, you know, whether we're talking ice hockey or basketball or you name it. it. It is what it is. We all kind of accept that, which is interesting and unique about the sports world. One other place where until recently I think you could have made the same claim is in medicine and the sciences more broadly. Sometimes what's referred to as STEM uh, the STEM profession, science, technology, engineering, and math. But there is a blockbuster of a piece out from uh, Heather McDonald, who we've had many times before on the show. In, it's in, uh, in City Journal, and it's called How Identity Politics is Harming the Sciences. And what she's talking about is, look, there is an effort underway that has become really pervasive to just straight up change the uh, qualifications for high-level math, you know, for high-level math graduate school or engineering or medicine, medical schools. Medical schools now are very much concerned with diversity in a way that you're going to start to see some pushback on it because, hold on a second, do we really want to play games with who get to be the next generation of brain surgeons? Don't we just all want the best brain surgeon? And this is what I mean by comparing it to professional sports. I think you see where I'm going with this one. 
I don't think that any rational human being would say to himself or herself, you know what, this doctor who went to Harvard and Harvard and, you know, all the best schools for medical school, but I don't like his or her uh, ethnic background, so I wouldn't want that. No, you just want the best doctor, period. You don't care what color, you don't care what gender, you don't care what gender identity, you, you just want the best doctor. But how can you think you're getting the best doctor when medical schools are actively changing the criterion of who they accept and then at higher levels within the medical community who gets certain fellowships and research positions and is elevated within the hospital hierarchy too? I'm sorry, folks, but I don't care what the social justice warriors say. I don't want somebody getting pushed along and pushed along Who's going to be operating on, you know, my great-great-grandpappy's heart? I don't want that. Although that would be quite a surgery because, you know, that's a few generations back. But you know what I'm saying, right? I don't want my, my imaginary on Ethel to get somebody to come in there who, for the purposes of making liberals feel good, is being held up as, as the best in the field of. And by the way, it is fiercely competitive to just get into medical school. But as Heather McDonald writes in this piece on identity politics and the sciences, they are just straight up rigging the system. And this is going to have very negative ramifications. And the left, this is where they're just wrong. They're just wrong. Because what they're doing is creating an objective set of facts that essentially non-white males and non-Asian males, by the way. So Asian males and white males go in this category of we got too many of you. But everybody else in the medical field going forward could reasonably be suspect in the level of their skill because they are straight up across the board at the best to the worst medical schools changing the way that they assess the skills of people who are non-white, non-Asian males. So all female doctors, that's right, it's all women now because they're pushing really hard to get women into uh, the the higher fields of mathematics as well as the higher fields of medicine. Medicine, we'll focus on that. This, by the way, also applies to engineering. You know, the people that are involved in, like, making sure that a bridge can hold the weight, that kind of stuff. Um, Higher-level mathematics, you know, rocket scientists and physicists and people that do all that. But with medicine, it really hits home because I know the one thing we feel like in this country we have going for us is it's really hard to be a doctor. Doctors are well-paid. We want the best of the best. I do not want, and I remember Ward Connolly, by the way, an African-American who was very prominent in getting rid of racial preferences in the California school system. I remember him saying that, and this is back when I was in college, I want highly paid and the best when it comes to a surgeon. I don't care what the demographic breakdown of his medical class was. I don't care if it feels like this is nice for society. I want the best. I feel the same way. You and I feel the same way on this team. We want the best people. But when you start to look under the hood, and Heather McDonald has done it, they are really uh, playing games here. I mean, this is the worst kind of do-gooder, virtue-signaling social engineering because the long-term ramifications are going to be, one, you've got people that are just not qualified for the jobs they have, and they literally hold people's lives in their hands. And two, people are going to start to change their perceptions of this, and this is what I mean by the left is wrong, because people are going to say, hold on a second, is this, you know, person who's, uh, you know, who is this doctor who is a 
uh, you know, transgender, Latin American, uh, and and disabled. Is this doctor the best that's about to come into the operating room, or is this doctor somebody that was being helped along the whole way because of the identity politics involved here? And the left will just say you're racist or you're you're bigoted for saying that. Meanwhile, it is just a reflection of the reality they are creating. Here's what Heather writes in this piece. Appl- quote, applicants and uh, or this is about admissions into medical schools. That they will employ holistic review in order to engineer a diverse class. Quote, the result is a vast gap in entering qualifications from 2013 to 2016. Medical schools nationally admitted 57% of black applicants with a low MCAT of 24 to 26, but only 8% of whites and 6% of Asians with those same scores. Individual schools have larger disparities. This achievement gap does not close over the course of medical school, but the underrepresented minority students, URM students, who do complete their medical training will be fanatically sought after anyway. Uh, Adding to the medical school's diversity woes is the fact that the number of male uh, underrepresented, pardon me, uh, underrepresented minority student applicants has been declining in recent years, making it even, well, end quote there. So, you know, think about this. They're they're changing the you know you're a doctor now. They're changing the the MCAT scores of people that get to be doctors based on their ethnicity because they think that that's making the world a better place. I, I think that that's making the world actually a way worse place for all the reasons that I'm that I'm stating and telling you about. Um, but I, I want to go on a little more into some of what what Heather has to say here. Um, she she makes some really good cases, and it's more than just uh, it's more than just the idea of admissions. It's also in the coursework. Um, they're now teaching scientists to be inclusive. Here, here's what she writes: There's a course that maintains instead that all students are scientifically brilliant. Science is a practice of collective sense making that calls forth inclusive ways of being brilliant. Students in this inclusive Chemistry 1A coursework uh, in groups arranging data cards in the proper sequence uh, represent blah, blah. Skip that for a second. Chemical terms of art are avoided wherever wherever possible to accommodate different students' academic backgrounds. The instructors hold teams accountable to group thinking. A team can't question an instructor unless it has collectively arrived at the question and poses it in we language. Folks. And this is like, this is Marxist medicine. That's what this is. That's what's going on here. Look, I want to get more into this. So uh, stay with me. We're going to talk more about identity politics and the medical profession. I think this is the biggest story in the country that no one's talking about right now. I really do. Uh, how How do they then teach the hard sciences and how do they grade it? Oh, that's right. They start changing it based upon what they think the ethnic composition of some of these incoming classes should be. I'll I'll finish this up, team, on the uh, other side uh, in just a moment. Stay with me. I absolutely love dogs, all kinds, all different breeds, shapes, sizes. Uh, But one thing that all dogs have in common, they can dig. And if you've left your dog at home and you want to let him out in the yard at the end of the day, 
guess what? They can start digging under your fence. And you might have tried a couple of different things to stop them from doing so, but you know what? I've got the answer for you. Dig defense. Dig defense takes care of the problem of pets being able to dig out under the fence or predators trying to get into your enclosed yard, your fenced-in area, by making it impossible to get under there. It's easy to install with a hammer and a pair of gloves, and it comes in a bunch of different models and sizes to fit your needs exactly. So go check out Dig Defense now, available online at Lowe's, Menards, Wayfair, and StopTheDig.com. Check out their website. Dig Defense is your solution for pets digging under the fence. Go to StopTheDig.com now. Welcome to Hour 3, team. Great to have you here. So I want to continue about identity politics and the sciences. Because, again, this this ties into so much of what is animating intellectual conservatism right now. People talk about the the, the, uh, conservatism that's gaining uh, followers online. And and you see some of these names out there of people that are making the, uh, you know, the, what is it? The intellectual dark web. I'm trying to think of what they call it. Uh, but this is where you see that the left just has no answers here. All they have are accusations and anger and they can't deal with the substance because what are we to say about not just changing the way, remember there's a couple things going on here. One of them is they're changing how we gauge merit. That so so that right now a and look it's it's male female too folks so this this goes beyond just uh, uh, you know racial and and ethnic identity politics this is also an issue of male female right? cisgender politics if you will uh, but what ends up happening is that these schools are run by these deans these di- and diversity educators and all these different all these different people who are making determinations, by the way, determinations that have a real effect on the lives of the young people who, in the case of medical school, are taking out quarter of a million, half a million dollars of loans if they're really going to go all the way through. So it's a huge deal where you go to school. And I have friends who I have friends who were very smart who didn't get into medical school. So these are life-changing decisions that these committees, these schools get to have. But not only are they changing the way they gauge merit and with admissions committees, they also change the way they're teaching science. As I said, it is Marxist medicine now. you got to sit there, and before you can ask the professor a question, you have to get the agreement of your group to ask the question. I mean, this is the collectivization of, of day-to-day classwork, right? This is collectivizing the individual's ability to... Think for himself or herself. I mean, think about the message that this is sending. I mean, they've done this already in law. This is what I'm trying. People say to me, Buck, why why is the intelligence community so left wing? And I say to them, well, there's a lot of conservatives in it, but it it is at the high level, very left wing. And it's because people that study international relations and foreign policy and political science are overwhelmingly going through these liberal indoctrination centers. Same thing is true of law schools now. I mean, law schools have all turned hard left, and now we're seeing it in medical schools, which means that your doctor 10 years from now is going to be a Bernie bro who probably wasn't so slick when it comes to getting into medical school, depending on what category, or maybe it's a Bernie cis 
you know, depending on what category he or she fell into in the in this whole application process, but also the way they're learning, the way they're teaching. Remember, this is in this article. As you can tell, I was up late last night reading this, and I was just, wow, this article is just crazy stuff going on here. You know, hat tip Heather McDonald for what she wrote in City Journal. But, you know, I want to give you some more of the, the details of how they're teaching in these actual classes. Um, for example, she, she touches on, well, uh, you know, she, she touches on how all male research teams are mocked. And this is now just in general with STEM industry leaders, right? So this is in addition to the medical community, which has this going on. This is what's happening at the biggest tech companies with science, technology, and math. Quote, STEM industry leaders are fully on board the diversity juggernaut, having absorbed academic identity politics. The giant Silicon Valley companies offer gender and race-exclusive mentoring programs and give special consideration to females and underrepresented minorities in hiring and promotions. Managers go through the same costly implicit bias training as faculty committees. In August 2017, Google fired computer engineer James Damore for questioning the premises of Google's diversity training. The the discrimination lawsuit he subsequently filed against Google reveals a workplace culture infused with academic victimology. Employees denounce the advocacy of a gender and race-blind policy as... uh, uh, Sorry, I I cut off my own quote there, so I don't know what it says. I'm assuming as bad. All male research teams are mocked. Employees self-righteously offer to protect Google's oppressed females and underrepresented minorities from ignorant conservative opinion. I mean, this stuff is... So so this stuff is now at the top tech companies. It's at the top universities. It's all over the place. I mean, this virus of identity politics and social justice, the social justice-ification of classwork in science, math, medicine, and the professional tracks that it puts people on is well underway. And, you know, this is one of the reasons I keep talking about it. The left, they're just wrong here. They can talk about it as much as they want, but it's just wrong. And then Heather really uh, gets into, well, well, I'll, I'll hold off on that part for a second. She writes, underrepresented minorities are encouraged to apply, indeed beg to apply, to medical school and postgraduate medical training programs. Everyone at this level is trying incredibly hard to be fair, generous, forgiving, thoughtful, kind, and encouraging to these applicants. But if the pool of candidates is actually declining, no amount of effort will achieve diversity. It's one thing to do poorly on the MCAT, it's another to not even bother taking it. The latter is now the bigger problem because the academy has already relaxed its standards and come up with all kinds of ways to explain away the need to do well on these tests. I mean, what she's saying is not only has the diversity craze, the diversity mania really set in in all these institutions, but they have changed the standards so much that now their biggest problem is they literally do not have the applicant pool that they think they need for diversity. So, Think about this. If you're a white or Asian male and you're applying to medical school, you are very unlikely, you know, unless you have phenomenal MCATs and grades, everything, you're very unlikely to get into a top medical school just by the numbers. But at some of these medical schools, they're so desperate for underrepresented minorities and, yes, females in uh, the medical profession that they are 
they don't know what to do because they don't even have the applicant. So now they're going, they're doing outreach. So think about this. Imagine if, you know, you're, you're some son of, uh, you know, Filipino immigrants and you apply to Harvard Medical School. You don't get in. In fact, you don't get into any medical school despite having pretty solid MCATs. Meanwhile, those same MCATs, by the way, is the admission test. It's like the SAT for medical school. Those same schools are doing outreach programs begging minority students to apply to medical school. And you're like, uh, where's my white privilege, right? You're a Filipino immigrant, and you're, or your parents are, and you're first-generation American. Huh? That's where the, the left is wrong. They're just wrong here. It's unjustifiable. They cannot, they, they cannot defend these policies other than to say that they think it's good, and if you disagree, you're racist, and you're a bad person, and you're a sexist, too. Uh, this is another part of this I thought was really interesting. Heather McDonald writing this. I'm just quoting her. This is a national journal. Um, the, this is about the belief that every scientific field would show gender parity. This is what she says. That belief is ungrounded. Males outperform females at the highest reaches of mathematical reasoning and are overrepresented at the lowest level of mathematical incompetence. Differences in math precocity between boys and girls show up as early as kindergarten. For decades, males in every ethnic group have scored higher than females in their same ethnic group on the math SAT. In 2016, the percentage of males scoring above 700 was nearly twice as high as the percentage of females in that range. There are 2.5 males in the U.S. in the top 0.01% of math ability for every female. Now, funders, industry leaders, and academic administrators maintain that scientific progress will stall unless we pay close attention to identity and try to engineer proportional representation in schools and laboratories. The truth is exactly the opposite. Lowering standards and diverting scientists' energy into combating phantom sexism and racism is reckless in a highly competitive, ruthless, and unforgiving unforgiving global marketplace. Uh, China is catching up to the U.S. in science and technology. We need to pay attention. So there's a few different things she works in here. One is, as you know, by the way, that got Larry Summers. Just for bringing that up, he got fired from being like the, the provost or dean or whatever he was at Harvard, at Harvard University. Saying, well, you know, maybe in general, you know, men actually just in the aggregate uh, have more, look, more people that fall into the realm of like math genius, basically, just because he got fired for that. Heather's like, well, that's actually what the numbers show. By the way, this is the same same discussion that gets in in different ways, gets people like Sam Harris and Charles Murray and uh, Heather McDonald and, and others into all this trouble because they're just like, well, this is what the science says. And then they go, how dare you? You can't discuss that. And you get the voxes of the world, you know, the 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 shrieking beta males of the digerati coming after people who are just trying to actually have a real discussion about what's what's happening. Uh, but then the point she makes about our, our competitiveness. Yeah, I, I agree with Heather that this is an issue with trying to, you know, stay ahead of China in science and math. And that's our biggest civilizational advantage other than our general respect for rule of law, which Democrats are also eroding legal immigration, the Mueller probe, and all the recklessness with the prosecutorial misconduct. But at the level of our day-to-day, what do they think it's going to do for people's sense of the victimology and intersectionality, right? The idea that all these different groups are oppressing one another, when all of a sudden now people are saying, you know what, I just, I, I want a doctor who falls into these categories because I know that he, and it's going to be a he in most cases, didn't get a leg up and had to earn it. What's the left going to tell us 
when in 10 years we're looking back and saying, hold on a second, what about these doctors who just aren't as talented and aren't as good? Why did they get pushed through? Who is that benefiting? Do you want to be the one getting open heart surgery from the affirmative action doctor or the gender parity doctor? I think we all know the answer to that question. So this is where the left is wrong. The thing about critical information for your business is when you need it, you need it right away and you need to get it from people that you can trust who are the best in the business. That's Global Verification Network. They're the only dual certified veteran owned background investigation and vetting company uh, for your hiring needs. If you've got a business large or small and you want to make sure that you can have the proper background check done on everybody or if you need vetting of a prospective client, if you're involved in any kind of a corporate transaction where you need to know more about the other side, Global Verification Network is your answer. Call them at 877-695-1179 or go to mygvn.com. That's mygvn.com or 877-695-1179. Headquartered here in Chicago, Global Verification Network has risk mitigation experts that will work with startups all the way up to Fortune 100s. Check them out for yourself. Global Verification Network Leave no stone unturned. One of the things that Trump learned in New York, in the toughest media market in America, is that backing down and apologizing never worked. uh, Because the people who are your enemies just take that pocket and come at you again. And so I think he has a very clear pattern. He's, He's done this all the way through. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't back off. You know, Nude has become one of the most stalwart defenders of this administration. And and he's saying here what I was just saying yesterday about the whole Kelly Sadler situation, which is I understand why the White House isn't isn't giving in to this whole you must apologize for the bad but private comment of one of your employees after she's made an apology to the family, because it just means that that by the way, you know, I don't know what Kelly Sadler looks like right now. Um, she's slowly fading out of the news cycle. I mean, the media is trying to keep her in there as much as possible. The non-Fox media, right? The the uh, CNN, MSNBC, anti-Trump axis out there. Uh, by the way, we should the axis networks. You know, kind of like the axis powers. We should really come up with something here. But the 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 truth is that when you apologize, it used to be the case. And I think this is a cultural shift. And this is what got me thinking about this today. I, I think there's been a real change here. It used to be that if you apologized, there was some hope that the other side would say, okay, if, you, if we think you're, you're sincere, if you've done enough uh, penance, so to speak, we will let you go on with your life. We'll let you go on and do what it is you think you, you know, should be doing. But now your apology is kind of like being forced to testify against yourself. Right? There's a reason why we have a constitutional right not to, uh, to give testimony that could be a problem for us because there's something particularly debasing right you you, you have a right against self-incrimination you have a right to main, uh, remain silent as you know and and take you plead the fifth and that and a right to remain silent is miranda it's different but it's a similar concept right that you can just be quiet right? police can make you talk they can make you testify in a court um what the left wants now is not just the apology and to hold that up like some kind of a trophy of victory over you, but they want to force you to apologize King Joffrey style from Game of Thrones. They want to force you to admit your treason so then they can lop your head off and say, but I mean, he admitted it, folks. 
right? The, the, the game has changed now. And, and you can never, never, never apologize. Look, we, we saw this uh, with uh, Laura Ingram over at Fox News, who I didn't think stepped down the line at all, first of all, really. I mean, you know, th- there's a difference between not my cup of tea and out of line. And what she got in trouble for initially with the, with the media wasn't out of line. It just wasn't, you know, wasn't what I would have said or done, but, you know. And then she said, all right, you know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And, and they used that admission against her, right? The, I'm sorry, uh, you know, I, I could have been taking the higher road or something. That was, that was used against her, just like, you know, anything you, can, anything you say can and will be used against you. That's what apologies are now. And that's why I, I understand the hesitation from the White House, because the moment the White House, and you know this as well as I do, I mean, there's a lot of posturing going on over this. The moment, by the way, you know, put, put this aside for a moment. The the Democrats and the left have made a, a particular, almost become like professional John McCain defenders in so much as it's a useful cudgel against Trump and this administration. You know, I, I remember when, you know, they were they were trashing John McCain when he was running against Obama. Me, but you know now now it's it's useful for them. So they're I, I don't mean on this specific incident, but even th- those that came before this with this administration, they always take McCain's side. I think it's interesting. I think it's obviously opportunistic. Uh, but the hesitation to apologize, I understand where it comes from because I see what happens. Uh, the good faith apology is no longer rewarded by the left. The good faith apology no longer gets you anything. And in fact, it it works against you a lot of the time. So the the moment the White House were to come out and say, you know what, we want to give a formal apology on on behalf of Kelly Sadler, who has apologized to uh, Meghan McCain. uh, The moment they come out and say that it is the only news story you're going to see the country subjected to with any consistency for about 48 hours oh this white house look at how terrible it will be as though trump said it himself and has had to apologize for it and this is where narrative and framing and context and all the things the media all the games they like to play really come into effect as you know you know a a comment made by you know joe biden saying i'm gonna put you all back in chains for example i mean comments that really are out of line media will say oh you know he's speaking Look, they, they, they made a science of this practically with Joe Biden. Joe Biden would say something. He'd be like, yeah, you know, if you're an Indian and you own a 7-Eleven, I mean, that's just what he said. You know, you remember this? Uh, you know, we, we could probably even grab a, a clip of, of, of some Bidenisms and just play it here for you on the air. Maybe we'll do that later on. Um, but, you know, Biden would say something that was offensive or over the line. They'd say, oh, you know, that's just Joe being Joe. Uh-uh. If that were a Republican, it would be, he needs to be run out of office. This is an outrage. And so it's just, ch- it's changed the game with apologies. That's all I'm really trying to say. It, it is a different world now for this. And you only apologize if you feel it is, it is what honor and ethics demand, not what they demand, not what the other side is demanding of you. Because the apology is just used as the rope to finish off your career. You're, you're donezo when you apologize now because that's the way the left is playing the game. Um, so with that, I want to talk to you about Tom Wolf, who just passed away. That's coming up. I usually don't uh, 
spend much time on the show talking about those who have uh, recently departed uh, in terms of people that are well-known, celebrities, political figures. Uh, but you may have seen that Tom Wolf uh, passed away today at the age of uh, 88. And this, this was one that I have to say, I kind of had to stop and think for a little bit about how this guy had a, an influence on me. If you haven't read Bonfire of the Vanities, I think that it's a book that uh, to this day maintains a lot of its uh, political salience. Uh, it still gives you a real sense of how the game is played when it comes to criminal prosecutions, the way the media deals with them, and just the social and political dynamics at work in an American city. I think that uh, Wolf's Bonfire of the Vanities really captured that. You know, you get people that are all pushing, they're all pushing their own agendas, and that has some very real effects for folks who are caught up in the maelstrom. Uh, I, I think it's a good book. I was assigned it years ago in, in school, and I'd already read it on my own, so that was kind of a fun one. You know, whenever the, I used to love that when I had beaten the teacher to the punch but then I ended up having to read again because, you know, reading comprehension tests, you've got to remember if, uh, you know, the lady wore a pink bow in her hair or not or else they think you didn't read it. Uh, but, you know, Wolf was, Wolf was a really, oh gosh, I was going to say profound author. That sounds pretty hackneyed, but it's true. Uh, known for Bonfire. Very bad movie. I was actually just talking to my family about that over the weekend. Uh, the film adaptation of Bonfire of the Vanities is pretty much total garbage. It has Tom Hanks in it. Yeah, that's right. Tom Hanks is capable of clunkers. Don't think that Hanks is above uh, dropping some pretty bad stuff out there because uh, it, it has certainly happened. Um, Bonfire is a case in point. It, just, it was miscast, poorly written. The whole thing it was just bad. It was just really bad. And uh, electric Kool-Aid acid test... Um, I am, oh, Hooking Up was another book that he wrote. Really, I think that was a collection of essays. I read that one. Uh, and then I Am Charlotte Simmons, which was really based on Duke University maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And he got some of the dynamics that we see today when you're talking about political correctness. And uh, he, he got some of that very right. He wrote a sex scene in the book that people gave a very hard time to the book for just in, in that it was... The whole thing was kind of uncomfortable for people to read, and uh, I, you know, I think he got a, I think he got a Razzie for it, like the award for the worst. Um, but I am Charlotte Simmons, also was concerned with uh, something that I always talk about, which is that universities have turned into, and I don't know people get mad at me for this, and that's fine. I'm okay with that because I think I'm right, and I tell you what I think is right: that a lot of colleges, universities have turned into minor league sports franchises that also have classes. And that needs to not be the case. Uh, I, I was shocked even when I got to a little rinky-dink D3 athletic program at Amherst that this was a centerpiece of campus life, that we were all supposed to care how our terrible football team did each year. Why? They weren't very good at all, and no one cares, although we were all supposed to care. I, I was, a, I guess, a, a school spirit malcontent in that sense. Uh, but at a school like Duke, where you're talking about being national champions and things like basketball and lacrosse, uh, it's it's even more powerful a force on the campus. And I, I just think it's gotten completely out of control. And and he dealt with that in the book. He referred to 
some of these D1 athletes as essentially mercenaries who go through the motions of being students, but really are very leading very separate lives and have a very different emphasis from their fellow students, especially if there's a prospect of going pro. Uh, so, yeah, Wolf, um, you know, Wolf passed away today. He was known for wearing white suits all the time. And for, oh, he also was the author of The Right Stuff, by the way, which, you know what? I actually haven't read that one. And I, a lot of people say that's actually his, his best. Uh, he worked at the Washington Post, the New York Herald Tribune. Um, he wrote a literary style known as the New Journalism. So, uh, yeah, he was, he was, an, he was a, a, a big deal. Let's say. He was kind of a big deal. Tom Wolf died at 88. Years of age. Um, I have to say, you know, there are, there are only a few books that I remember reading when I was really young and thinking it would be the greatest job imaginable to be a novelist, and Bonfire of the Vanities is one of them. Um, it, and it also really captured a, a kind of 80s zeitgeist of being in New York City, for those of you who care about that kind of stuff. Bonfire and the movie Wall Street are two that I would really recommend. In fact, you should watch Wall Street and then read Bonfire or vice versa. Uh, but being a novelist has got to be one of the greatest jobs of all time. If you can do it. I feel like now it's, you know, ebooks and there's all this different competition. So there are only a few writers. I mean, when Christopher Hitchens passed away, I felt like, wow, I'm not going to read any more of that guy's stuff. It, so it affected my life in that regard, right? Wow, I'm not, not, of course, you feel sorry for anyone's family. But these guys had lived, Hitchens, and, well, he was a bit younger, but a wolf certainly at his age led a very full, very successful life. But you think about how, for folks who uh, really look forward to the next article or the next book by some of these people, it it, it affects you a little bit. You're like, oh, wow, uh, I'm not going to read anymore. But as I said, the right stuff now, I think, has to be put on my list of books that I will have to tackle going forward. Although that list right now is, is huge. It's really big. i got to find a way to start cutting it down to size. I, I've fallen off the wagon the last few days. I've been so ensconced in other projects. I haven't been reading books, which I force myself to do every day, at least uh, some portion of the day. Roll call is up next. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Swampy, my friends. It is swampy down here in D.C. Uh, I, I just was talking to Brandon, who's running the board today, and I told him I'm, I'm, sh- I'm schwitzing way too much. I walk around, and it's just a constant schwitz. And it, it's not in the fun way where you feel like you're releasing toxins. I'm just uh, walking around in a state of dampness, which is neither fun nor, nor particularly attractive, I think. Nonetheless... Uh, Dan here in the swamp. Got a lot to talk to you about here on Roll Call. If you want to be uh, involved in the Roll Call, it is a pretty straightforward process. Just go to facebook.com, lefacebook.com, slash Buck Sexton. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Donald, first up here. Love the show, Buck. Listen live every chance I get, but your podcasts are great to have, too. Well, thank you, Donald. Regarding yesterday's show where you were playing news clips about the embassy in Israel, it was just eight years ago when we were told that we had to change our traditions. Just an observation of the media's hypocrisy once again. 
Well, Donald, I see, I see what you're going for there. And yes, in fact, it is the case that the way things were done in the past, uh, that's unbreakable tradition when it's something that the left likes. And the way things were done in the past that uh, the left doesn't like, we're told that's on the wrong side of history. That's the phrase that the Obama administration in particular liked to use. Uh, Seth is next up here. Hey, Buck, I agree with your roll call contributor from Monday's episode regarding Joe Rogan. I had to stop listening to him because he was Trump bashing too much. Plus, you're both wicked smart, and I bet you'd make for a great guest. I'd love to hear that podcast uh, from Seth. Seth, thank you so much. Yeah, man. Look, tell Joe. Send him a note. Send him an email. I'm happy to do it. And uh, I will... um, I'll reach out to him. I don't think we follow each other on Twitter, but I'll I'll send him a note and go for it. So yeah, but but please help me spread the word. It is uh, is really appreciated whenever you can get my name out there to other hosts, other folks who have a platform that uh, you think I should join in on. Uh, next up is Justin. Uh, every time you bring up homeless in Malibu, all I can think is stay out of Malibu, Lebowski. Ah, <laughs> uh, there you go. Yeah, the Big Lebowski. I'll I tell you the truth. I I didn't think it was a great movie the first time I saw it. I had to see it a few times, and then as time went on, I liked it more and more. Um, don't ever do this. Is from John. Don't ever do that teenage girl voice again. Okay, <laughs> sorry, John. They're not all. They can't all be winners. Michael, next up here. Black Rifle Coffee now has decaf pods. Dude, I'm on it, buck one five. Yep, it is true, folks. If you're now a decaf person, you can get your decaf coffee from Black Rifle. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck coupon code buck one five. Make it happen. And thank you, Michael. Uh, Next up here, Lev writes, just heard your Mother's Day brunch issue with frying roast potatoes. Get an air fryer, my new favorite kitchen appliance, Healthy way of frying adds great flavor to any food. Shields high. Lev. Um, I've never even heard. Brandon, you ever heard of an air fryer? I've never even heard of an air fryer before. I have not, no. It, I, I, but I, I feel like I've had at some frou-frou fancy places in New York, like air, air fried French fries or something. I, I think maybe I'm making that up, but that sounds right. Anyway, Lev, it sounds like a great suggestion. I just don't know anything about it, so I'll uh, look into it, and I will get back to you. Michael, next up here. Buck, I got beef with you. Bogus Journey was no excellent adventure, but it's just as ridiculously awesome. Death's character was hilarious. It has some redeeming qualities. Station! Um, You know, I have to go back and watch Bogus Journey. I just remember it being disappointing. Uh, and I was young when I saw it. Maybe maybe it's aged better than I thought, but Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is, is just fantastic. I always like, actually, the scene where the dad, right, uh, Ted Theodore Logan and Bill S. Preston Esquire. Um, but when Ted's dad is, uh, who's the police chief, or maybe it's Bill's dad. I forget which one has the police chief dad. I think it's Ted, who played by Keanu Reeves. And he brings the, well, I was going to say the historical character of, but he brings Sigmund Freud in the office. And he's like, he's like, so he's like, tell me your name. And he's like, Sigmund Freud. And then Freud's like, 
So tell me about your mother. <laughs> I have to say, like, you know, there's some good stuff in there, you know? There's some good stuff in there. And I'll, I'll, the Napoleon character, the best part of the whole movie is when they take Napoleon to the water park, I think. I don't know why, but the guy who plays Napoleon it actually is a pretty good lookalike and just does a great job. It's a fun movie, man. It, you know, it's, it's crazy, but it's, uh, George Carlin's in it. If you haven't seen it, obviously it's a little bit out there, but uh, I, I would recommend it. I think it uh, is fun, and you can watch it with the whole family. Joe, next up in Roll Call. Hey, Buck, you mentioned a leaker in the White House regarding the McCain controversy, and I'm wondering, hasn't anyone ever heard of a polygraph? As a CIA alumni, don't they ever use it? If no, if not, why not? I was going to be an FBI agent after college, but I smoked some drugs and assumed I'd be polygraphed so I didn't try. Ironic, considering I'm the same age as Bill Clinton from Joe. Um, you know, Joe, the, the truth is that uh, the polygraph is not the cure-all for, uh, for lies that a lot of people think it is. It's as much art as it is science. And it also takes a trained polygrapher to apply the darn thing. So it's not that easy. Um, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, they could, they could probably polygraph people. It'll just take a long time. And to polygraph people, though, for non-criminal behavior in the White House, that, that would, I think that would be seen rightly as a, as a bit extreme. Uh, next up here is Dave. He writes, Italy is great, right by the Flatiron Building. We stay at the Hotel Henry across the street when in the city. Well, Dave, that is, yes, the Flatiron neighborhood, named for the Flatiron Building, which is on uh, the corner of 23rd, where Broadway and 5th Avenue uh, meet. And it is, or no, wait, where, where they actually diverge, not where they meet. Um, the Flatiron Building was, uh, I think, initially called the Fuller Building, Um and it was supposed to be an office tower to create in lower, in that part of Manhattan, which is uh, roughly 23rd Street, a, a new financial center. So didn't happen, but it is a trendy, fun era. If you're ever in New York City, I, I do really recommend the Flatiron District. Uh, Madison Square Park is beautiful. A lot of great restaurants around there. Really nice place to take a stroll. And if you go further west into Chelsea, if you're in the galleries, lots and lots of really funky and in some cases very very expensive and high-end art galleries all right next up we have uh victor um here we go and hello buck i believe canada has had legal sports gambling for many years now um i did not know that victor well thank you for bringing that to my attention and yeah i don't think it's destroyed canada so we'll be okay canadians are nice people so Sports gambling, look, it's already legal here. It's just a question of uh, qui bono, who benefits. Is it the state? Is it the gambling houses? Is it bookies? Is it organized crime? You know, who? Because there's gambling going on all the time. Like the stock market is just gambling with thoughts attached to it, right? Gambling with research. But stocks are a form of gambling, too. Alan, next up here. Hey, Buck. You're probably too young to remember when the hashtag sign meant pound, not hashtag. <laughs> look, look what I just did there. Uh, yeah. Now Im imagine using the old meaning with the current popular um, meme, hashtag me too. That would create quite a stir. Alan, 
Get your mind out of the gutter, sir. Uh, Eric, next up here. Oh, man, you cracked me up with your spot-on imitation of that Mike Quigley character. Well, I have no proof of that assertion, but can you prove my no-proof assertion is unproven, sir? I think not. Your show is great for the analysis, but the hilarious impressions are perfect icing for the cake. Looking forward to the official unveiling of the new DC gig this week. Keep up the great work from Eric. Well, Eric, thank you so much. Uh, great to have you on board, and um, appreciate having you as a member of Team Buck. We've got a whole lot more messages here, but I cannot get to them today. Uh, but I would just say thank you to all of you for writing in. Uh, please do download the podcast and uh, share it with a friend if you get a chance. You know, if someone's ever like, hey, do you listen to podcasts? Just be like, oh, I listen to Buck Sexton's podcast. It's great, the Buck Sexton Show. Uh, the DC announcement is stalled still, but uh, we'll have it for you soon. Until then, my friends, I know that we all have our, uh, our challenges, our trials and tribulations, but the good news is we have our orders and we know the way forward. And as always, it is Shields High.